Section 15 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 2, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 15. The Pavilion on the Links by Robert Louis Stevenson, Part 2. 4. This was my wife's story as I drew it from her among tears and sobs. Her name was Clara Huddlestone. It sounded very beautiful in my ears, but not so beautiful as that other name of Clara Cassilis, which she wore during the longer and, I thank God, the happier portion of her life. Her father, Bernard Huddlestone, had been a private banker in a very large way of business. Many years before, his affairs becoming disordered, he had been led to try dangerous, and at last criminal, expedients to retrieve himself from ruin. All was in vain. He became more and more cruelly involved, and found his honor lost at the same moment with his fortune. About this period, Northmour had been courting his daughter with great assiduity, though with small encouragement, and to him, knowing him thus disposed in his favor, Bernard Huddlestone turned for help in his extremity. It was not merely ruin and dishonor, nor merely a legal condemnation that the unhappy man had brought upon his head. It seemed he could have gone to prison with a light heart. What he feared, what kept him awake at night or recalled him from slumber into frenzy, was some secret, sudden, and unlawful attempt on his life. Hence he desired to bury his existence and escape to one of the islands in the South Pacific, and it was in Northmore's yacht, the Red Earl, that he designed to go. The yacht picked them up clandestinely upon the coast of Wales, and had once more deposited them at Graden, till she could be refitted and provisioned for the longer voyage. Nor could Clara doubt that her hand had been stipulated as the price of passage, for, although Northmour was neither unkind nor even discourteous, he had shown himself in several instances somewhat overbold in speech and manner. I listened, I need not say, with fixed attention, and put many questions as to the more mysterious part. It was in vain. She had no clear idea of what the blow was, nor of how it was expected to fall. Her father's alarm was unfeigned and physically prostrating, and he had thought more than once of making an unconditional surrender to the police. But the scheme was finally abandoned, for he was convinced that not even the strength of our English prisons could shelter him from his pursuers. He had had many affairs in Italy, with Italians resident in London, in the later years of his business, and these last, as Clara fancied, were somehow connected with the doom that threatened him. He had shown great terror at the presence of an Italian scammon on board the Red Earl, and had bitterly and repeatedly accused Northmore in consequence. The latter had protested that Beppo, that was the seaman's name, was a capital fellow, and could be trusted to the death but Mr. Huddlestone had continued ever since to declare that all was lost, that it was only a question of days, and that Beppo would be the ruin of him yet. I regarded the whole story as the hallucination of a mind shaken by calamity. He had suffered heavy loss by his Italian transactions, and hence the sight of an Italian was hateful to him, and the principal part in his nightmare would naturally enough be played by one of that nation. "'What your father wants,' I said, is a good doctor and some calming medicine. But Mr. Northmore, objected Clara, he is untroubled by losses, and yet he shares in this terror. 
I could not help laughing at what I considered her simplicity. "'My dear,' said I, "'you have told me yourself what reward he has to look for. All is fair in love, you must remember, and if Northmore foments your father's terrors, it is not at all because he is afraid of any Italian man, but simply because he is infatuated with a charming English woman.' She reminded me of his attack upon myself on the night of the disembarkation, and this I was unable to explain. In short, and from one thing to another, it was agreed between us that I should set out at once for the Fisher village, Great and Wester, as it was called, to look up all the newspapers I could find and see for myself if there seemed any basis of fact for these continued alarms. The next morning, at the same hour and place, I was to make my report to Clara. She said no more on that occasion about my departure, nor, indeed, did she make it a secret that she clung to the thought of my proximity as something helpful and pleasant. And, for my part, I could not have left her if she had gone upon her knees to ask it. I reached Graden Wester before ten in the forenoon, for in those days I was an excellent pedestrian, and the distance, as I think I have said, was little over seven miles, fine walking all the way upon the springy turf. The village is one of the bleakest on the coast, which is saying much. There is a church in the hollow, a miserable haven in the rocks, where many boots have been lost as they returned from fishing, two or three score of stone houses arranged along the beach and in two streets, one leading from the harbour and another striking out from it at right angles, and, at the corner of these two, a very dark and cheerless tavern by way of principal hotel. I had dressed myself somewhat more suitably to my station in life, and at once called upon the minister in his little manse beside the graveyard. He knew me, although it was more than nine years since we had met, and when I told him that I had been long upon a walking tour, and was behind with the news, readily lent me an armful of newspapers, dating from a month back to the day before. With these I sought the tavern, and, ordering some breakfast, sat down to study the Huddleston failure. It had been, it appeared, a very flagrant case. Thousands of persons were reduced to poverty, and one in particular had blown out his brains as soon as payment was suspended. It was strange to myself that, while I read these details, I continued rather to sympathize with Mr. Huddlestone rather than his victims. So complete already was the empire of my love for my wife. A price was naturally set upon the banker's head, and— as the case was inexcusable and the public indignation thoroughly aroused, the unusual figure of seven hundred and fifty pounds was offered for his capture. He was reported to have large sums of money in his possession. One day he had been heard of in Spain. The next there was sure intelligence that he was still lurking between Manchester and Liverpool, or along the border of Wales. And the day after, a telegram would announce his arrival in Cuba or Yucatan, but in all this there was no word of an Italian, nor any sign of mystery. In the very last paper, however, there was one item not so clear. The accountants who were charged to verify the failure had, it seemed, come upon the traces of a very large number of thousands, which figured for some time in the transactions of the house of Huddlestone, but which came from nowhere, and disappeared in the same mysterious fashion. It was only once referred to by name, and then under the initials X, X, but it had plainly been floated for the first time into the business at a period of great depression some six years ago. The name of a distinguished royal personage had been mentioned by rumor in connection with this sum. The cowardly desperado, such, I remember, was the editorial expression, 
was supposed to have escaped with a large part of this mysterious fund still in his possession. I was still brooding over the fact, and trying to torture it into some connection with Mr. Huddleston's daughter, when a man entered the tavern and asked for some bread and cheese with a decided foreign accent. "'Cite Italiano?' said I. "'Si, signor,' was his reply. I said it was unusual far north to find one of his compatriots, at which he shrugged his shoulders, and replied that a man would go anywhere to find work. What work he could hope to find at Graden Wester I was totally unable to conceive, and the incident struck so unpleasantly upon my mind that I asked the landlord, while he was seen counting me some change, whether he had ever before seen an Italian in the village. He said he had once seen some Norwegians, who had been shipwrecked on the other side of Graden Ness, and rescued by the lifeboat from Cald Haven. No, said I, but an Italian, like the man who has just had bread and cheese. What? cried he. Yon black-avised fellow with the teeth? Was he an Italian? Weel, yon's the first that I ever saw, and I dare say he's like to be the last. Even as he was speaking, I raised my eyes and, casting a glance into the street, beheld three men in earnest conversation together, not thirty yards away. One of them was my recent companion in the tavern parlour. The other two, by their handsome sallow features and soft hats, should evidently belong to the same race. A crowd of village children stood around them, gesticulating and talking gibberish in imitation. The trio looked singularly foreign to the bleak, dirty street in which they were standing, and the dark grey heaven that overspread them, and I confess my incredulity received at that moment a shock from which it never recovered. I might reason with myself as I pleased, but I could not argue down the effect of what I had seen, and I began to share in the Italian terror. It was already drawing toward the close of day before I returned the newspapers to the manse, and got well forward on to the links on my way home. I shall never forget that walk. It grew very cold and boisterous. The wind sung in the short grass about my feet. Thin rain showers came running on the gusts and an immense mountain range of clouds began to arise out of the bosom of the sea. It would be hard to imagine a more dismal evening, and whether it was from these external influences, or because my nerves were already affected by what I had heard and seen, my thoughts were as gloomy as the weather. The upper windows of the pavilion commanded a considerable spread of links in the direction of Graden Wester. To avoid observation, it was necessary to hug the beach until I had gained cover from the higher sand-hills on the little headland, when I might strike across, through the hollows, for the margin of the wood. The sun was about setting, the tide was low, and all the quicksands uncovered, and I was moving along, lost in unpleasant thoughts, when I was suddenly thunderstruck to perceive the prints of human feet. They ran parallel to my own course but low down upon the beach, instead of along the border of the turf, and, when I examined them, I saw at once, by the size and coarseness of the impression, that it was a stranger to me, and to those of the pavilion, who had recently passed that way. Not only so, but from the recklessness of the course which he had followed, steering near to the most formidable portions of the sand, he was evidently a stranger to the country and to the ill repute of Graden Beach." Step by step I followed the prints, until, a quarter of a mile further, I beheld them die away into the south-eastern boundary of Graden Flow. There, whoever he was, the miserable man had perished. One or two gulls, who had, perhaps, seen him disappear, 
wheeled over his sepulchre with their usual melancholy piping. The sun had broken through the clouds by a last effort, and colored the wide level of quicksands with a dusky purple. I stood for some time gazing at the spot, chilled and disheartened by my own reflections, with a strong and commanding consciousness of death. I remember wondering how long the tragedy had taken, and whether his screams had been audible at the pavilion. And then, making a strong resolution, I was about to tear myself away, when a gust fiercer than usual fell upon this quarter of the beach, and I saw, now whirling high in the air, now skimming lightly across the surface of the sands, a soft, black felt hat, somewhat conical in shape, such as I had remarked already on the heads of the Italians. I believe, but I am not sure, that I uttered a cry. The wind was driving the hat shoreward, and I ran round the border of the floe to be ready against its arrival. The gust fell, dropping the hat for a while upon the quicksand, and then, once more freshening, landed it a few yards from where I stood. I seized it with the interest you may imagine. It had seen some service. Indeed, it was rustier than either of those I had seen that day upon the street. The lining was red, stamped with the name of the maker, which I have forgotten, and that of the place of its manufacture, Venedig. This, it is not yet forgotten, was the name given by the Austrians to the beautiful city of Venice, then, and for a long time after, a part of their dominions. The shock was complete. I saw imaginary Italians upon every side, and for the first, and, I may say, for the last time in my experience, I became overpowered by what is called a panic terror. I knew nothing, that is, to be afraid of, and yet I admit that I was heartily afraid, and it was with sensible reluctance that I returned to my exposed and solitary camp in the sea-wood. There I ate some cold porridge which had been left over from the night before, for I was disinclined to make a fire, and, feeling strengthened and reassured, dismissed all these fanciful terrors from my mind, and lay down to sleep with composure. How long I may have slept it is impossible for me to guess, but I was awakened at last by a sudden, blinding flash of light into my face. It woke me like a blow. In an instant I was upon my knees, but the light had gone as suddenly as it came. The darkness was intense, and, as it was blowing great guns from the sea, and pouring with rain, the noises of the storm effectually concealed all others. It was, I dare say, half a minute before I regained my self-possession. But for two circumstances I should have thought I had been awakened by some new and vivid form of nightmare. First, the flap of my tent, which I had shut carefully when I retired, was now unfastened, and second, I could still perceive, with a sharpness that excluded any theory of hallucination, the smell of hot metal and of burning oil. The conclusion was obvious. I had been awakened by someone flashing a bull's-eye lantern in my face. It had been but a flash, and away. He had seen my face, and then gone. I asked myself the object of so strange a proceeding, and the answer came pat. The man, whoever he was, had thought to recognize me, and he had not. There was another question unresolved, and to this, I may say, I feared to give an answer. If he had recognized me, what would he have done? My fears were immediately diverted from myself, for I saw that I had been visited in a mistake, and I became persuaded that some dreadful danger threatened the pavilion. 
it required some nerve to issue forth into the black and intricate thicket which surrounded and overhung the den. But I groped my way to the links, drenched with rain, beaten upon and deafened by the gusts, and fearing at every step to lay my hand upon some lurking adversary. The darkness was so complete that I might have been surrounded by an army, and yet none the wiser, and the uproar of the gale so loud that my hearing was as useless as my sight. For the rest of that night, which seemed interminably long, I patrolled the vicinity of the pavilion, without seeing a living creature or hearing any noise but the concert of the wind, the sea, and the rain. A light in the upper story filtered through a cranny of the shutter, and kept me company till the approach of dawn. 5. With the first peep of day I retired from the open to my old lair among the sand-hills, there to await the coming of my wife. The morning was grey, wild and melancholy. The wind moderated before sunrise, and then went about, and blew in puffs from the shore. The sea began to go down, but the rain still fell without mercy. Over all the wilderness of links there was not a creature to be seen, yet I felt sure the neighborhood was alive with skulking foes. The light that had been so suddenly and surprisingly flashed upon my face as I lay sleeping, and the hat that had been blown ashore by the wind from overgrade and flow, were two speaking signals of the peril that environed Clara and the party in the pavilion. It was perhaps half-past seven, or near eight, before I saw the door open, and that dear figure come toward me in the rain. I was waiting for her on the beach before she had crossed the sand-hills. "'I have had such trouble to come,' she cried. "'They did not wish me to go walking in the rain.' "'Clara,' I said, "'you are not frightened.' "'No,' said she, with a simplicity that filled my heart with confidence. For my wife was the bravest as well as the best of women.' In my experience I have not found the two go always together, but with her they did, and she combined the extreme of fortitude with the most endearing and beautiful virtues. I told her what had happened, and, though her cheek grew visibly paler, she retained perfect control over her senses. You see now that I am safe, said I, in conclusion. They do not mean to harm me, for, had they chosen, I was a dead man last night. She laid her hand upon my arm. "'And I had no presentiment,' she cried. "'Her accent thrilled me with delight. "'I put my arm about her and strained her to my side, "'and before either of us was aware "'her hands were on my shoulders and my lips upon her mouth. "'Yet up to that moment no word of love had passed between us. "'To this day I remember the touch of her cheek, "'which was wet and cold with the rain, "'and many a time since, when she has been washing her face, "'I have kissed it again for the sake of that morning on the beach.' Now that she is taken from me, and I finish my pilgrimage alone, I recall our old loving-kindnesses, and the deep honesty and affection which united us, and my present loss seems but a trifle in comparison. We may have thus stood for some seconds, for time passes quickly with lovers, before we were startled by a peal of laughter close at hand. It was not natural mirth, but seemed to be affected in order to conceal an angrier feeling. We both turned— though I still kept my left arm about Clara's waist. Nor did she seek to withdraw herself, and there, a few paces off, upon the beach, stood Northmore, his head lowered, his hands behind his back, his nostrils white with passion. "'Ah, Cassilis,' he said, as I disclosed my face. "'That same,' said I, 
for I was not at all put about. And so, Miss Huddlestone, he continued slowly but savagely, this is how you keep your faith to your father and to me? This is the value you set upon your father's life? And are you so infatuated with this young gentleman that you must brave ruin and decency and common human caution? Miss Huddlestone, I was beginning to interrupt him, when he, in turn, cut in brutally. You hold your tongue, said he. I am speaking to that girl. That girl, as you call her, is my wife, said I, and my wife only leaned a little nearer, so that I knew she had affirmed my words. Your what? he cried. You lie. Northmour, said I, we all know you have a bad temper, and I am the last man to be irritated by words. For all that, I propose that you speak lower, for I am convinced that we are not alone. He looked round him, and it was plain that my remark had in some degree sobered his passion. What do you mean? he asked. I said only one word. Italians. He swore a round oath, and looked at us, from one to the other. Mr. Cassilis knows all that I know, said my wife. What I want to know, he broke out, is where the devil Mr. Cassilis comes from, and what the devil Mr. Cassilis is doing here. You say you are married, that I do not believe. If you were, Great and Flo would soon divorce you. Four minutes and a half, Cassilis. I keep my private cemetery for my friends. It took somewhat longer, said I, for that Italian. He looked at me for a moment, half daunted, and then, almost civilly, asked me to tell my story. You have too much the advantage of me, Cassilis, he added. I complied, of course, and he listened with several ejaculations, while I told him how I had come to Graydon, and that it was I whom he had tried to murder on the night of landing, and what I had subsequently seen and heard of the Italians. Well, said he, when I had done, it is here at last. There is no mistake about that. And what, may I ask, do you propose to do? I propose to stay with you and lend a hand, said I. You are a brave man, he returned, with a peculiar intonation. I am not afraid, said I. And so, he continued, I am to understand that you two are married, and you stand up to it before my face, Miss Huddlestone. We are not yet married, said Clara, but we shall be as soon as we can. Bravo, cried Northmore, and the bargain? Damn it, you're not a fool, young woman. I may call a spade a spade with you. How about the bargain? You know as well as I do what your father's life depends upon. I have only to put my hands under my coat-tails and walk away, and his throat would be cut before evening. Yes, Mr. Northmour, returned Clara with great spirit. But that is what you will never do. You made a bargain that was unworthy of a gentleman. But you are a gentleman for all that, and you will never desert a man whom you have begun to help. Aha, said he, you think I will give my yacht for nothing. You think I will risk my life and liberty for love of the old gentleman, and then, I suppose, be best man at the wedding, to wind up? Well, he added, with an odd smile, perhaps you are not altogether wrong, but ask Cassilis here. He knows me. Am I a man to trust? Am I safe and scrupulous? Am I kind? I know you talk a great deal, and sometimes, I think, very foolishly, replied Clara, but I know you are a gentleman, and I am not the least afraid. He looked at her with a peculiar approval and admiration, then, turning to me, "'Do you think I would give her up without a struggle, Frank?' said he. "'I tell you plainly, you look out. The next time we come to blows—' "'We'll make the third, I interrupted, smiling. 
I, true, so it will, he said. I had forgotten. Well, the third time's lucky. The third time, you mean, you will have the crew of the Red Earl to help you, I said. Do you hear him? he asked, turning to my wife. I hear two men speaking like cowards, said she. I should despise myself either to think or speak like that. And neither of you believe one word that you are saying, which makes it the more wicked and silly. She's a tramp, cried Northmour, but she's not yet Mrs. Cassilis. I say no more. The present is not for me. Then my wife surprised me. I leave you here, she said suddenly. My father has been too long alone. But remember this, you are to be friends, for you are both good friends to me. She has since told me her reason for this step. As long as she remained, she declares that we two would have continued to quarrel, and I suppose that she was right, for when she was gone we fell at once into a sort of confidentiality. Northmore stared after her as she went away over the sand hill. She is the only woman in the world, he exclaimed with an oath. Look at her action. I, for my part, leaped at this opportunity for a little further light. See here, Northmore, said I, we are all in a tight place, are we not? I believe you, my boy, he answered, looking me in the eyes and with great emphasis. We have all hell upon us, that's the truth. You may believe me or not, but I'm afraid of my life. Tell me one thing, said I. What are they after, these Italians? What do they want with Mr. Huddlestone? Don't you know, he cried. The black old scamp had carbonari funds on a deposit, two hundred and eighty thousand, and of course he gambled it away on stocks. There was to have been a revolution in the Tridentino, or Parma, but the revolution is off, and the whole wasp's nest is after Huddlestone. We shall all be lucky if we can save our skins. The carbonari, I exclaimed, God help him indeed. Amen, said Northmore. And now, look here. I have said that we are in a fix, and, frankly, I shall be glad of your help. If I can't save Huddlestone, I want at least to save the girl. Come and stay in the pavilion, and there's my hand on it. I shall act as your friend until the old man is either clear or dead. But, he added, once that is settled, you become my rival once again, and I warn you, mind yourself. Done, said I, and we shook hands. And now let us go directly to the fort, said Northmour, and he began to lead the way through the rain. 6. We were admitted to the pavilion by Clara, and I was surprised by the completeness and security of the defences. A barricade of great strength, and yet easy to displace, supported the door against any violence from without, and the shutters of the dining-room, into which I was led directly, and which was feebly illuminated by a lamp, were even more elaborately fortified. The panels were strengthened by bars and cross-bars, and these, in their turn, were kept in position by a system of braces and struts, some abutting on the floor, some on the roof, and others, in fine, against the opposite wall of the apartment. It was at once a solid and well-designed piece of carpentry, and I did not seek to conceal my admiration. "'I am the engineer,' said Northmore. "'You remember the planks in the garden. Behold them.' "'I did not know you had so many talents,' said I. "'Are you armed?' he continued, pointing to an array of guns and pistols, all in admirable order, which stood in line against the wall, or were displayed upon the sideboard. "'Thank you,' I returned. "'I have gone armed since our last encounter, but, to tell you the truth, I have had nothing to eat since early yesterday evening.' Northmore produced some cold meat, to which I eagerly set myself, and a bottle of good burgundy, 
by which, wet as I was, I did not scruple to profit. I have always been an extreme temperance man on principle, but it is useless to push principle to excess, and on this occasion I believe that I finished three-quarters of the bottle. As I ate, I still continued to admire the preparations for defense. "'We could stand a siege,' I said at length. "'Yes,' drawled Northmour, "'a very little one, perhaps. It is not so much the strength of the pavilion, I misdoubt. It is the double danger that kills me. If we get to shooting, wild as the country is, someone is sure to hear it, and then, why, that's the same thing, only different, as they say, caged by law or killed by carbonari. There's the choice. It is a devilish bad thing to have the law against you in this world, and so I tell the old gentleman upstairs. He is quite of my way of thinking. Speaking of that, said I, what kind of person is he? Oh, he, cried the other. He's a rancid fellow, as far as he goes. I should like to have his neck wrung to-morrow by all the devils in Italy. I am not in this affair for him. You take me? I made a bargain for Missy's hand, and I mean to have it, too. That, by the way, said I, I understand. But how will Mr. Huddlestone take my intrusion? Leave that to Clara, returned Northmore. I could have struck him in the face for his coarse familiarity, but I respected the truce, as, I am bound to say, did Northmore, and so long as the danger continued not a cloud arose in our relation. I bear him this testimony with the most unfeigned satisfaction, nor am I without pride when I look back upon my own behavior, for surely no two men were ever left in a position so invidious and irritating. As soon as I had done eating, we proceeded to inspect the lower floor. Window by window we tried the different supports, now and then making an inconsiderable change, and the strokes of the hammer sounded with startling loudness through the house. I proposed, I remember, to make loopholes, but he told me they were already made in the windows of the upper story. It was an anxious business, this inspection, and left me downhearted. There were two doors and five windows to protect, and, counting Clara, only four of us to defend them against an unknown number of foes. I communicated my doubts to Northmore, who assured me, with unmoved composure, that he entirely shared them. "'Before morning,' said he, "'we shall all be butchered and buried in great and flow. For me, that is written.' I could not help shuddering at the mention of the quicksand, but reminded Northmore that our enemies had spared me in the wood. "'Do not flatter yourself,' said he. "'Then you were not in the same boat with the old gentleman. Now you are.' It's the flow for all of us. Mark my words. I trembled for Clara, and just then her dear voice was heard calling us to come upstairs. Northmore showed me the way, and, when he had reached the landing, knocked at the door of what used to be called my uncle's bedroom, as the founder of the pavilion had designed it especially for himself. Come in, Northmore. Come in, dear Mr. Cassilis, said a voice from within. Pushing open the door, Northmore admitted me before him into the apartment. As I came in, I could see the daughter slipping out by the side door into the study, which had been prepared as her bedroom. In the bed, which was drawn back against the wall, instead of standing, as I had last seen it, boldly across the window, sat Bernard Huddlestone, the defaulting banker. Little as I had seen of him by the shifting light of the lantern on the links, I had no difficulty in recognizing him for the same. He had a long and sallow countenance, surrounded by long red beard, and side-whiskers. His broken nose and high cheekbones gave him somewhat the air of a Kalmuck, and his light eyes shone with the excitement of a high fever. 
He wore a skull-cap of black silk. A huge Bible lay open before him on the bed, with a pair of gold spectacles in the place, and a pile of other books lay on the stand by his side. The green curtains lent a cadaverous shade to his cheeks, and, as he sat propped on pillows, his great stature was painfully hunched, and his head protruded till it overhung his knees. I believe if he had not died otherwise, he must have fallen a victim to consumption in the course of but a very few weeks. He held out to me a hand, long, thin, and disagreeably hairy. "'Come in, come in, Mr. Cassilis,' said he. "'Another protector—ahem, another protector. Always welcome as a friend of my daughter's, Mr. Cassilis. How they have rallied about me, my daughter's friends. May God in heaven bless and reward them for it. I gave him my hand, of course, because I could not help it, but the sympathy I had been prepared to feel for Clara's father was immediately soured by his appearance and the wielding, unreal tones in which he spoke. "'Cassilis is a good man,' said Northmour, "'worth ten. "'So I hear,' cried Mr. Huddlestone eagerly, "'so my girl tells me, "'Ah, Mr. Cassilis, my sin has found me out, you see. "'I am very low, very low, but I hope equally penitent.' We must all come to the throne of grace at last, Mr. Cassilis. For my part, I come late indeed, but with unfeigned humility, I trust. Fiddle-dee-dee, said Northmore roughly. No, no, dear Northmore, cried the banker. You must not say that. You must not try to shake me. You forget, my dear, good boy. You forget that I may be called this very night before my Maker. His excitement was pitiful to behold and I felt myself growing indignant with Northmore, whose infidel opinions I well knew, and heartily despised, as he continued to taunt the poor sinner out of his humour of repentance. Pooh, my dear Huddlestone,' said he, "'you do yourself injustice. You are a man of the world inside and out, and were up to all kinds of mischief before I was born. Your conscience is tan like South American leather. Only you forgot to tan your liver.' and that, if you will believe me, is the seat of the annoyance. "'Rogue! Rogue! Bad boy!' said Mr. Huddlestone, shaking his finger. "'I am no Prisian, if you come to that. I always hated a Prisian, but I never lost hold of something better through it all. I have been a bad boy, Mr. Cassilis. I do not seek to deny that. But it was after my wife's death, and you know, with a widower, it's a different thing. Sinful, I won't say no.' but there is a gradation, we shall hope. And talking of that, hark, he broke out suddenly, his hand raised, his finger spread, his face racked with interest and terror. Only the rain, bless God, he added, after a pause, and with indescribable relief. For some seconds he lay back among the pillows, like a man near to fainting. Then he gathered himself together, and, in somewhat tremulous tones, began once more to thank me for the share I was prepared to take in his defence. "'One question, sir,' said I, when he had paused. "'Is it true that you have money with you?' He seemed annoyed by the question, but admitted with reluctance that he had a little. "'Well,' I continued, "'it is their money they are after, is it not? And why not give it up to them?' "'Ah,' replied he, shaking his head, "'I have tried that already, Mr. Cassilis, and, alas, that it should be so, but it is blood they want.' "'Huddlestone, that's a little less than fair,' said Northmore. "'You should mention that what you offered them was upward of two hundred thousand short. The deficit is worth a reference. It is for what they call a cool sum, Frank. Then, you see, the fellows reason in their clear Italian way. 
and it seems to them, as indeed it seems to me, that they may just as well have both while they are about it, money and blood together, by George, and no more trouble for the extra pleasure. Is it in the pavilion? I asked. It is, and I wish it were in the bottom of the sea instead, said Northmore, and then suddenly, What are you making faces at me for? he cried to Mr. Huddlestone, on whom I had unconsciously turned my back. Do you think Cassilis would sell you? Mr. Huddlestone protested that nothing had been further from his mind. It is a good thing, retorted Northmore, in his ugliest manner. You might end by wearying us. What were you going to say? he added, turning to me. I was going to propose an occupation for the afternoon, said I. Let us carry that money out, piece by piece, and lay it down before the pavilion door. If the carbonari come, why, it's theirs at any rate. No, no, cried Mr. Huddlestone. It does not, it cannot belong to them. It should be distributed pro rata among all my creditors. Come now, Huddleston, said Northmore, none of that. Well, but my daughter, moaned the wretched man, your daughter will do well enough. Here are two suitors, Cassilis and I, neither of us beggars, between whom she has to choose. And as for yourself, to make an end of arguments, you have no right to a farthing, and, unless I'm much mistaken, you are going to die. It was certainly very cruelly said, but Mr. Huddlestone was a man who attracted little sympathy, and, although I saw him wince and shudder, I mentally endorsed the rebuke, nay, I added a contribution of my own. Northmore and I, I said, are willing enough to help you save your life, but not to escape with stolen property. He struggled for a while with himself, as though he were on the point of giving way to anger, but prudence had the best of the controversy. My dear boys, he said, do with me or my money what you will. I leave it all in your hands. Let me compose myself. And so we left him, gladly enough, I am sure. The last that I saw, he had once more taken up his great Bible, and with tremulous hands was adjusting his spectacles to read. End of section 15